0: Alfred Clark still occupies the home we believe. Oh, he's yes. got a ghost. Yes, we do. Didn't really believe in ghosts before we purchased the home. Some people call it spirituality. some people call it quantum physics, you know the fact that we leave particles of ourselves behind. I don't know where I lay on that, but I know that these homes have a soul. I really feel it.
1: We're on the road to Heatherbrae, 1854, a new podcast about Julie and Vincent Federa's restoration of Heatherbrae, 1854, a grand Victorian mansion in Caulfield, Melbourne, Australia. I'm Susie Jones, and this podcast will take you on a journey to Heatherbrae, 1854 with insights into the process of bringing this home to life. From historical discoveries and stories from days gone by, the world of design and the art of lost trades to the challenges of taking on a project of this scale. Well, what a treat today for our first episode of Bray 1854. We're actually on site in the laundry and this isn't any such laundry. Julie is with me. Julie, the owner with uh, her husband, Vince, of Heatherbray. Tell us a bit about this laundry.
0: Well, this is uh, an original uh, Victorian wash house. It's never been altered or changed. It has a triple timber trough with the original reticulate Water through it, and the boiler and copper pot. It also has a fireplace because it would have been bloody cold here. But well, it in is the cold day. today. Isn't it's it? cold here today. That's <laughs> and it's right. it's sunny outside. <laughs> and even the bricks on the floor, which we believe were made in the Hawthorne Brickworks, and have uh, irrigation channels built into them. It's very rustic.
1: It is. It's amazing that uh, so much of this laundry and mm. this house is still in original condition. I know.
0: I think that's what we loved about it. Even just if you look at the patina on the walls and just sitting in here, you think about the hard labour, the hard slog, the sweat and tears that would have happened in this laundry house. If the walls
1: could talk. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so Bray, 1854. Mm. What a journey it has been for you already. It has been. Now, How long have you owned this magnificent building?
0: We purchased it in August last year, but we didn't settle and get the keys until I think it was the 6th of April of this year. So yeah, it's been about four months.
1: Now, for anyone when you're driving past, it is a work site and the question could be to you, why? But when you look at it, you go, wow, if someone could do it, why not? Mm. However, it's a mammoth task in front of you. What attracted you to purchasing Bray and uh, undertaking such a restoration
0: Well, that's a big question, I guess. My husband and I uh, have been together for 30-odd years and we have adult children. I met him in 1991. I was uh, looking for my third job and he had a bar job going. I went and applied for that job and, you know, next thing I know a couple of weeks later he invited me to his family home in Kew. I was just a naive girl from stall in in the Western District and I had just got my licence. I rocked up to his house and it was this beautiful what I now know to be a Queen Anne mansion, painted pink interesting story behind that too. But I opened the door. he opened the door to me and it was the first time in my life I've ever seen 14-foot ceilings, parquetry floors, beautiful staircases with landings and and acorn detail, cornices ceiling roses. I was overwhelmed. And I think at that moment, I just looked at this beautiful home beyond this man that I was dating. I was about (laughs) to say, maybe you love the home more than had at that stage. It's quite possible in week two, but um, don't tell Vinny that. But look, I just fell in love with the feel of the home. That is a consistent theme. Of all the period homes that I've been in since, is that beautiful soul that they have beyond the uh, four walls. So that was the uh, entree to my love of these homes. Vince and I ultimately got married, and and we've been fortunate enough to have owned and restored. Oh gosh, eight or nine period homes before Heather Bray. But you know, in this post-COVID world, and with our children as adults, we had been looking for a downsizer that we could, you know, lock and, and go off and travel and do the things that we couldn't do for those years. So funny. That I mean, we
1: downsize <laughs> is going from something bigger to something smaller.
0: I know. I know. There's a, there's a reason behind that. So we, we had been looking at living closer to the beach and of course buying a, a period home, it's something that was small and maintainable while we were well, we were traveling. Um, but while we were going through that process and I was looking at real estate, this home popped up in the advertising. And for me, I had never seen or been through an original Victorian home like this. And I said to Vinnie, darling, I just need to see it. We don't want to buy it. I just want to go see it. And so we came over on a Saturday and uh, we walked along the cobblestone up to the house the original brickwork that was put in in the 1800s and the home itself I've I've since learned is a an amalgamation of an 1854 and an 1880 structure that is in completely original condition right down to the servants bells the the cellars the original oven you know all these amazing features and we just walked around in wonder we spent the whole of the uh, allocated time for the inspection here and then some and we we left feeling a mixed emotions mix of elation at having experienced it but also terror at the concept that an institution or, or a developer would buy it and tear it down but at that point in time you know it wasn't what we were looking for we couldn't afford the price that they were suggesting for it so we went on our way and just enjoyed the experience and it was a couple of weeks later that i saw in hunting for a home, you know, our downsizer, that I saw that they'd revised the price. And I looked over at Vince and I said, oh my God, they've revised the price. Do you think we should go back and have another look? And uh, I coaxed him into it. And we came with a fresh set of eyes to the second inspection and wandered through, you know, just thinking, well, you know, we're kind of Working part-time these days, we are travelling a little bit and, you know, trying to fill our adventurous spirit in that way. And, you know, on leaving the property and the second inspection, I, I said to Vinnie, look, maybe that would be a good thing to do with our lives, next phase of our lives, to restore and enjoy and share Um, this home.
1: Were you both on the same page then going to that second inspection? Like what did you have in mind when you went there?
0: I guess the thing that drove us to the second inspection was the excitement of the first, you know, that experience that was still lingering from the first inspection, but also the knowledge that we could possibly afford it so you know I think we both were interested to come and have a look again and to see how we felt we had actually arranged the I think it was the next next few days we were heading off on a road trip to Marimbula we'd never been there and the expression of interest had actually closed I think the day before we were leaving and so we actually put in an a, an, an offer and an offer that we didn't think would get by the house we just thought well you never know you know, in for a penny. So we put in that offer and we headed off on our road trip. And as we were passing through Meatong in Victoria, we got a call from the agent saying, I think you guys are going to buy this house. And we were shocked, shocked. I I can't even tell you such a mixed emotion of fear and shock and elation. I, you know, as you do in moments like that, and as we drove between Mietang and, and our destination in, in Marimbula, we talked extensively about what all that meant for our family, for us, and uh, we got to Marimbula. Next thing you know, we were signing and exchanging contracts and uh, did the deal. So yeah, that's that's how we got here. <laughs> so Heather
1: Bray was that always the name of the house?
0: Yeah, interesting question, Suze, because when we first purchased the home, I did a bit of research on it and was able to discover certain information through the Glenira Historical Society. But I think it was around week two of having the keys to the home, so middle of April this year, I was sitting upstairs in the master bedroom just drafting up some concepts for walking robes and, and bathrooms the night before I had read an article that the age ran on foreshadowed changes to planning laws in Victoria which would centralize planning function to Spring Street and take the power planning power substantially out of the hands of local councils with a view to making way for 3.1 million more people in and around Melbourne City by 2050 and to facilitate 44,000 new home sites every year. You know, I had an emotional response to that sitting in this beautiful historic home. And I thought, my God, if if this home had have, uh, been put to market after that, or a few years before it received a heritage overlay, it would have been tipped in the bin and cut up into pieces. And wouldn't exist anymore. And it drove me to try to do something about it. You know, I've lived in um, period areas for quite a long time, for many decades actually, and often heard friends and and colleagues and passers-by talk about their terror, their horror at looking at these homes torn down, but never really known anyone to do anything about it. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do something. What can I do? So I put up a social media page. We put up uh, Heatherbrae 18 54 which is an Instagram page. And the hope behind that was to share the journey of our restoration and try to get people to fall in love with these homes again. I mean, just you know, I, I'm just one person. What can I do? I can help educate. I can help get the message out and hopefully reach decision makers, whether that be government officials or um, home, home owners or uh, planners, heritage consultants. And it's really struck a chord. And to answer your question, you know, it is that page. I've learned a lot about the home and about its history. I've, you know, I can't believe it in, in the short time, you know, in the 17, 18 weeks that the page has been live. We've amassed almost 10,000 followers. Those followers help me learn about the home and share information about the home, including people who actually grew up
1: around here with the uh, owners. So take us through that history then of what you've learned Mm -hmm. on uh, the very first owner to you today.
0: Sorry, the one other thing I'll mention before I answer that question is that there's a lady who I've met through the Glenora Historical Society who has loved the this home for as long as I've been alive. Her name's Jenny O'Donnell and she has been writing a book about the home, which is in pre-publication. She shared quite a lot of information with me too.
1: Someone that just writes a book about a home. I know, it's insane. Did she, not, did she interview the owners? Did
0: she come through? Like, what's well, the book about? Interestingly, the, the people that we bought the house from, the McGowan family, were the longest ownership of the home. The McGowan's owned the home for uh, over a hundred years and Jenny He was unable to get much information from them. They're quite private. But the information before that, she has extensively researched. And so what we've learnt through her, through the page, through my own research, is that the original part of the home, the six-room villa, was built in at least – in eighteen fifty four or by eighteen fifty four. We actually have a map of Corfield which would have been which was very early and would have just been someone walking by and checking out what the structures were, and obviously had walked past this site and observed a, a six-room or more dwelling. That was how it was described in eighteen fifty-four. So that part of the house, through uh, Jenny's research, she believes was built by a fellow called John Crosby. Not a lot is known about him, but I do know that he was a uh, had a counsellor's role at, at one time. And then he sold that at some point to a fellow called Augustus Summer. He, in the research that we've discovered, was a dairyman. He owned and rented land around the area where he had dairy cows. And actually on our um, Instagram, page you'll see I've got a picture from 1906 from the front garden of the home and if you stand at the front of Heather Bray today it is very developed there is a school across the road there's Caulfield Racecourse across the road and uh, you know houses built right up to the boundary but that particular photo shows nothing there is nothing to be seen in in the uh,
1: distance of all of those visions Uh, uh, so it could even be – they could have been cows uh, on yeah. here as a working dairy farm. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, Augustus Summer, in that 1854 map, it actually – it's it written on the, on the Heatherbrace site, which is the Lot 83. Um, it just says Summer. S o w m e r. So possibly the house was called Summer at that time. We're not sure, but in 1874 he sold the home, and we know this because we tra- we can trace the uh, title chain of title back to 1874. A fellow called John Holland bought the home. We've discovered that he came out to Australia on a boat from England in uh, 1857. And he was uh, partnered by a um, man called John Ross. Some of the listeners may know him. Um, he is uh, the man that created the suburb of Carnegie and also built the Ross Town Hotel, which sits on Dandenong Road. But John Holland made a fortune through pastoral pursuits and property purchases and uh, enough that he could build the two-storey structure of the home that you see today. The interesting thing about the architecture of the home is that the 1854 six-room villa part looks like a boom style Victorian home of the 1890s which it's not but the two-story section looks somewhat colonial so you know if you look at the home from the front you would think that the 1854 part is the two-story. John Holland unfortunately the banks foreclosed on him in 1893 so he only got to live in the house for about 12 years. This beautiful home that he'd created uh, that we're very grateful to have inherited. We hope to uh, bring a back and celebrate his legacy. And then who followed after him? Subsequent to him, it fell into the hands of a company and that company left it vacant and also then tenanted it. And they tenanted it to a very interesting character in the early 1900s called Alfred Clark, A.E. Clark, as he's known. He was a very civic man and he was instrumental in setting up the Melbourne Stock Exchange. He was involved in local churches and in fact ran little fates and and. Uh, kitchen teas in the front garden of heatherbrae and that's in local books you know we've got a few local books that that talk about those events and how tremendous the event was in the language of that day alfred clark still occupies the home we believe
1: Really? Oh, you've got a ghost?
0: Yes, we do. And, you know, I'm a lawyer by my background, so I'm quite logical-brained, I like to think. And I wasn't really, you know, didn't really believe in ghosts before we purchased the home. Interestingly, though, when we came through the inspection, the second inspection, I brought a girlfriend with me who has a connection to the other side. And we, uh, we walked past one of the rooms and she went in there and wouldn't come out. And I kept saying, Jen, I've got to go. Come on, come on. She ultimately came out, I don't know, five or ten minutes later and said, there's an old man in there. I said, what do you mean there's an old man in there? She said, no, no, there's a really striking, tall, lovely gentleman in there. I, said, I reckon he died in there like 1915-ish or, or, or around that time. I said, what are you talking about? Anyway, I, we, I just kept moving and we kept chatting about other things. And uh, then, as I said, we bought the house in August last year and we settled in April. And in the intervening period, the real estate agent sent us an email from the descendants of a fellow called Alfred E. Clark, And in that email, it stated that uh, he died in that room in 1913. So that kind of sent a shiver down my spine when I realised that that was the room. And then I saw images of Alfred and he was a tall, striking looking man. And since then, uh, you know, this is an active work site. We have security cameras internally. The security camera that points to that room always goes off. We're often finding ourselves turning it off at night because Alfred is moving around, I suspect. And, uh, you know, we have a, a tenant here who in his first night staying in the home, woke up at one o'clock in the morning to see his cupboard op- door open. We believe Alfred was checking him out to see if he was worthy of living in the home.
1: <laughs> i how wonderful. Yeah. And do you think that that's the only ghost that you've got living here? Because there's been a few people come and go.
0: Yeah, it's interesting actually because very recently, uh, and I haven't shared this on our social handles but yet, but we recently uh, discovered there were two other people that passed away in the home, one being a great aunt of one of the McGowans who, who purchased the home after Alfred died. I think it was around 1916 they purchased the home and they, they we bought it off the McGowans. They had it for over 100 years so the grandmother of the woman we bought it from, her great aunt apparently passed in the home. And there was another relative of theirs that passed in the home maybe around the
1: nineteen forties. Just even having the house for so long, can mm. you imagine the family gatherings, the just just you know that's, the vibe. That's, that's what
0: I mean when I when I said earlier that, you know, when when I walk through these old homes, I feel that. You know, I, I you know, some people call it spirituality. Some people call it quantum physics, you know, the fact that we leave particles of ourselves behind. I don't know where I lay on that, but I know that these homes have a soul. I really
1: feel it. At the start, you mentioned a number of things that came with the home. And one thing that has stood out, especially when you mention your socials, has been the oven. Yeah.
0: It's uh, I've never seen an oven quite like it. Brooks and Robinson were the biggest importer of products from France in the mid to late 1800s, and this oven, which we estimate is at least a couple of tons solid cast iron, was imported in a ship from France and I don't know how they lifted that thing and put it in situ but it's still there and it will stay there. We're building the new kitchen around it and uh, just wanting to celebrate that beautiful oven that is still fully functional and not just fully functional when people light it. Um, I actually found out just a couple of days ago that a young school friend of the woman that we bought the house from shared with me on socials that she remembers that oven lighting up on its own and she Attributed that to the ghost of Heather Bray? <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, it keeps going. So, the oven is just one of the many original features that are still in the home. And uh, obviously, as we keep going, you will be sharing a lot more with the community, because as you said, your socials have just taken off and you weren't the sort of person that really liked putting themselves out there. So it's a change for you. I was the
0: child who, when photos were taken, I would dart out of the room. I've never liked my photo taken or my video taken or listening to my voice. So it's been quite a interesting journey for me the last four months having to confront that, but I kind of feel like it's important. One of the things that I feel very strongly with this home and have since that moment when I had the emotional reaction in the bedroom was that I had an obligation to help change the way people engage with and feel about these historic homes. And as a result, not just have I um, created the social pages uh, in order to help educate people. But we've also
1: opened the home and conducted tours. Heather Bray, 1854 that's uh, on the social handles and Mm. it will be in the name of this podcast. And that continues. Now tell us though, your name is Julie, although sometimes when you walk down the streets (laughs) uh, locally, you would think you were Heather. That's right. It's so funny. I, I, you know, as I said, I've never, I've always, shied
0: away from any sort of publicity or attention. Closest I ever got to that was as a lawyer for Mercedes-Benz many years ago. I had a a very public issue with one of our motor vehicles. But what I find these days is uh, I'll be walking through the supermarket and I'll have people say, Heather, which I've now learned to turn to because people think my name is
1: Heather from Heather Bray. So I answer to Julie Heather. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Julie Heather Bray. 1854. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, we look forward to the next journey. The Journey to Heatherbray 1854 is our pilot podcast. If you'd like to hear more, please give us a review on your preferred podcast platform. If you'd like to find out more about our restoration journey, you can find Heatherbray 1854 on Facebook, Instagram, and at www.heatherbray1854.com. Co-producers Julie Federa and Anne Baker. The music for The Journey to Heatherbray 1854 was composed and performed by Mason Jay. I'm Susie Jones.